Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 again. Romans chapter 9. Today marks the 100th sermon in our study of Romans. And um, it's interesting that God's providence has brought us to this text on this day, kind of the century mark of working through this book. Romans chapter 9. We're going to pick up at verse 19, but that actually takes the context before that, which I'll give you a little head start on in a moment. Romans 9 verse 19. You will say to me then, why does God, he, find fault for who resists his will? Now, what he's saying is God chooses whom he chooses. He has grace in whom he has grace. Ultimately, he even hardened Pharaoh's heart. And after that hardening of of Pharaoh's heart, Paul raises the objection that he knows will ask, well, hang on, if God hardens and softens, How can you find fault with anyone since God's the one doing that? He knows we would ask that, so he picks it up. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from one lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom, and would have resembled Gomorrah. There have been a few times over the last few years that I've shared with you a metaphor of an impassable river, and it comes to bear again today. Imagine a beautiful, flowing, crashing, rapid, turbulent river. As far as you can look upstream, there's nothing but rapids. As far as you can look downstream, there's nothing but rapids. And you want to get across the river. It's too deep to dig under. It's too fast and too rough to swim or boat across. It's too rocky to even try to jump from rock to rock. It's extremely dangerous. These rapids extend too far to the north and the south for you to even consider going around. 
There's no way to get across it. Not over, not under, not around it. And you're frustrated because you want to get across the river. In all your efforts, you never stop to realize, though, how awesome and beautiful the river really is. It's just a problem to be solved. I think this ought to be our response as we come to this text and the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and salvation. I want to confess to you for, for many years, not long after I was a believer, I was first confronted with the idea that God chooses some and doesn't choose all. And that confrontation of that doctrine with my heart was a very, very turbulent collision. And I struggled for years over this. I struggled big time over this. I remember exercising that word, but, more times than I can, I can even imagine. I know the Bible says that, but, that can't be what it means. I think, though, spiritual maturity sees the doctrine of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as, a, as an unconquerable, uncrossable river. And we most honor God when we just step back and say, wow. What a God, what a doctrine, unquenchable, unsolvable, but amazing. I'm very aware how difficult the doctrine can be. This is the problem and the paradox you have to wrestle with. God is sovereign and man is responsible in salvation. The Bible teaches that God is totally sovereign over our lives, but it also equally teaches that we are required to make our own decisions for which we are completely and divinely accountable, responsible. Listen to these verses that affirm God's sovereignty in our, our lives. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He, God, turns it wherever he wishes. That's sovereign. Ephesians 1.11, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things, everything there is. He works all things after the counsel of his will. It all goes as he has willed and desired. Or Romans 9.21, which we studied last week, does not the potter have a right it's an interesting word. Have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. God is absolutely sovereign. But the Bible also teaches that man is completely responsible. John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. How clear is that? He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Belief and obedience are put in the hand and in the lap in the decision uh, in the mind of a person. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense and repay every man according to his deeds. Not whether or not he's chosen, but according to his deeds. Sometimes these two truths actually come together. Luke twenty two twenty two. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to the man who, by whom he has been betrayed. God determined the Son of Man's crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion, and yet man was responsible. Even clearer is Acts two twenty three. 
Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So who's responsible for the death of Jesus, God or man? Yes. I think my favorite confluence of these two ideas is in John 1. Turn to John 1 for a second. I want you to look at these two verses. John 1 verse 12 you see these two doctrines wonderfully mingled together by the same writer, one verse after the other. John 1, verse 12. As many as received Jesus, him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. What's, res- what's the response of man to God, to the gospel? What's the, the admonition here is to believe and to receive. You say, well, that's clear enough. And yet, go on, who were born, talking about spiritual birth, not of blood or the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. So hang on, John. What what are you telling me? Is man's salvation up to him receiving and believing or is it up to the absolute will of God? And John says, I just said both. Turn over to John chapter 6. We just read a few of these passages Verses rather in our scripture reading this morning. This is a critical place in God's word to, to really camp out and stake some ground in understanding this issue. Number one, because it's the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus are no more canonized and no more inspired than the words of any, any other biblical writer. But I think this is amazing to see how he says these two truths almost back to back. Watch this. You tell me after we read these, is it man's responsibility or God's sovereignty by which a man comes to salvation in Christ? Verse 29, John 6, 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. What's the work of God? That you believe in whom he has sent. In the same verse, you believe to be saved. Why do you believe? Because it's the work of God. God, that you do so. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He doesn't say, if you're chosen. He just says, come, believe. It's an open invitation. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. There's so much in verse 37. You understand that the church is a love gift from the Father to the Son. It's incredible. And all that God will give the Son will come to him. Predetermined. He's already fixed that in his mind. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise him up on the last day. Verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and, what's the word? believes in him will have eternal life. So you have the will of God and man's responsibility to believe right next to each other. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Why would anyone believe because the Father draws? Why would anyone be saved? Only because God gave that person to the Son. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, this is so clear. He who believes has eternal life. 
What do we tell someone as a response to the gospel? See if you're chosen. Know if you're elect. Do you know the secret predestination handshake? No, we say believe. He who believes will have eternal life. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone who... If anyone, does it say the chosen, does it say the elect, does it say the predestined? If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Seems an open invitation. Verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. That's spiritual life. The flesh profits nothing. I've spoken to you, he says, these words. Verse 64. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and also who it was who would betray him. That's Judas. Do you notice that Jesus knows who doesn't, will not believe before they were ever born? Verse 65. He was saying, for this reason I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted from him from the Father. Now, we seem to think that we're the first generation or the only people who've really ever struggled with this idea of predestination, election, the idea that man has responsibility. Some call it free will. People sometimes come up against this doctrine and they're, not, they're, they're so uncomfortable with it that they walk away. Look at verse 66. After Jesus saying, no one can come to me unless the Father grants it. Verse 66 says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. There were people in Jesus' own day under his own preaching who struggled with the sovereignty of God and salvation so much that when Jesus taught it, they said, I don't want anything to do with that. If we're going to navigate God's word, we have to embrace this concept of paradox. Two equally true things that come together in God's mind, but don't in our own. Only God can harmonize what our minds see as contradictory. You understand that? Only God can harmonize what we think are contradictions. Logical incompatibilities to humans are not problematic to the divine mind. That's good news. So, believing in God, that he's sovereign, that he's sovereign in salvation, I think does something to people who believe that doctrine. It creates an unmeasured, unmatched humility because we, we understand. We just sang it a minute ago, but in Ephesians chapter 2, we literally just sang this verse five minutes ago. You know it very well, for by grace you've been saved, Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of anything you do, works so that nobody can boast about this. Nobody can say, I'm saved because of me. It's so clear. Nobody can boast and say, well, I and my free will, I was so wise in choosing between God and the devil, between right and wrong, between good and evil. I chose that. And Paul says, no, no. It's the work of God. You can't boast that you made a good decision. So make no mistake. 
the determiner, focus, and hero of those who hold to free will is man. And the determiner, focus, and hero of those who hold to God's sovereignty is God. So we said it last week. Let me repeat it. I think that to deny God's sovereignty in salvation is not only to disregard the clear teaching of Scripture, it's an assault on its very character. That's where Paul goes in his argumentation in Romans 9, to the character of God. This is not just some abstract doctrine. This is the result of God and His righteousness or not. I told you last week, and do you remember? I said, we're going to do an extensive review, and I told you we're going to do it again next week. Remember that? Okay, I, I just want you to know I'm not repeating it just to fill time. I also want to tell you that next week we're going to do the same thing. So you, you, have to, you have to have this flow. You can't just drop in on this passage. So he begins the chapter with a passion for his brethren to be saved. He wants the Jews, his fellow uh, Jewish friends and relatives and neighbors to be saved. He doesn't want them to be separate from, separate from Christ. That shows that he's not a hyper-Calvinist. He wants them to be saved. He doesn't say, I want them to be elect. Then he rehearses the blessing that the Jews had. They had the forefathers in the scriptures. Ultimately, verse 5 says, the Christ came out of the line of Abraham. That sets up a question as to whether or not the word of God has failed. Obviously, if, if God has promised that he's going to send a Messiah to a promised people and the promise was not accepted by those to whom it was promised, you can ask the question, well, does God's word fail? Is, is, that, is it legitimate to say that what God intends doesn't happen? So in verse 6, he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And he says, because not all Israel was Israel. Not everyone who is a descendant of Abraham is truly a believer in Yahweh. Not only that, not all who are Jewish receive the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Then comes the evidence of the fulfillment of God's promises. And the evidence is interesting because it's not according to human wisdom. How do we know that? Because God did something that was entirely different than anything that happened in the ancient Near East in terms of inheriting promises and blessings. The inheritance and the blessing of a father always went to the firstborn. It's the law of the progenitor. He was the firstborn. He got the blessing. Who was the firstborn to Abraham? It was Ishmael. Under the cunning, conniving of Sarah, who said, well, I'm too old to have a baby. So she, she went to her handmaiden, uh, Hagar, and, and had Abraham lie with her. And they produced Ishmael. And God said, that's not the son of the promise. So the second born to Abraham was a man named Isaac. Isaac was the promised receiver of the inheritance. So it's different. He was... God fulfilled his promises, but not like we would think. It went on. The next generation, he chose Jacob over Esau, the two twins, even though Esau was born first. He's born first, and Jacob comes out holding his heel. Remember that? The text tells us, though, that he made this choice of Jacob over Esau before they were born and before they had done good or evil, right or wrong. That's important. He made the choice to love Jacob and hate Esau before they had ever done anything. Why is that important? Because it wasn't based on their lives. If you study the life of Jacob, you'll understand that he was no saint. 
And Esau wasn't quite as evil as everyone makes him out to be. Look at the, when Jacob and Esau come together at the end. You expect Esau to take Jacob's life. And he's gracious. He's merciful. You say, well, what's the deal? God made that choice, the text says, before they were even born. Which raises the question in verse 14. Well, is that fair? Is there no injustice with God? He says, may it never be. And then here's the great non-explanation. Why did he choose one over the other? Because I will have compassion on the one whom I'll have compassion and I will be merciful to the one that I'll be merciful. That is not any explanation at all except that it's rooted in the character of God as the chooser. He then quotes Exodus 33, 19. Then in verses 17 and 18, he brings up the mysterious work of God in the life of Pharaoh. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's almost like you feel the nails on the chalkboard. He's saying, I loved one, I hated the other. And you're going, ooh, that's hard to take. He says, I also hardened Pharaoh's heart. Really? Then how could Pharaoh be responsible? Why is it his fault if you hardened his heart? I'm glad you asked that because Paul knew you would in verse 19. You will say then, why does God still find fault with Pharaoh or Ishmael or Esau if he's sovereign? Then he says, who can resist his will? You think Paul taught the sovereignty of God in a person's life? You can't resist it. So that brings us to Paul's defense of God's character as he's looking at this. And that's the way we've outlined this. Three attributes of God that defend his sovereignty in salvation. Three attributes of God, his character, that defend his sovereignty in salvation. He begins in verses 19 to 21. This is review. We did this last week, this first point. We're only going to do the second one this week. God's righteous right. God's righteous right. You will say then, why does he find fault? Verse 19, who resists his will? The question is, if God both hardens and softens the heart, how can anyone be found faulty or guilty? Now remember, when we went back and looked at all those places where God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we also see equally that he hardened his own heart. And let's just say it this way too, he was born with a hard heart just as you and I are. Which leads to an illustration that Paul reaches for. And he goes back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 64, um, specifically to grab this illustration of the potter and the clay. On the contrary, who are you who answers back to God? Again, not an answer, but a, but a stinging rebuke. The thing molded, imagine a potter with a wheel and clay. The thing molded, the the, the vase, the cup, will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Who's in charge of how the clay turns out? The potter is. And he has the divine right, God does, to make some of these clay pots for honor or salvation and some for, for dishonor or for destruction. 
Why would God work things this way? I like how Tom Schreiner, the really excellent, fine Greek theologian, uh, theologian and Greek professor, I should say, Southern Seminary, he says, God made some vessels that are destined for destruction because he wanted to reveal his wrath and power against sin, which is exactly what he's going to say in this next passage. Verse 21, does the potter have a right over the clay? There's the word. Does he have a right? He does. Which leads us to number two, God's glorious patience. In defending God's character, he looks at another of his attributes. God's glorious patience. When we come to verses 22 to 24. Verse 22, friends, is... is is the most debated and it's the hardest verse in the entire Bible. If you don't believe what it says. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath Created or prepared for destruction. Do you see the question? Did God create, did God in his foreknowledge bring into life those who would go to hell only so they would go to hell? Did he prepare them, or the word means create or prepare, did he create them so that, just so that they would be damned and go to hell. Well, I know no other verse that draws more or sharper disagreement than this verse. But before we get into the part that everyone wants to talk about, would you look at the part that everyone ignores? God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known. Notice what Paul is doing here. He's showing God to be the one who shows people himself. So whatever we determine about what this doctrine says is to show us something about what God's like. See what he's saying there? God is showing us himself. He's revealing himself to us. So then we come to this translation of this very difficult Greek word, prepared, prepared for destruction. John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, said this. Only a few passages in Paul are more obscure than this one. And no certainty is possible as to how it ought to be translated. Well, I understand what he's saying. I think the translation is pretty straightforward. It's actually swallowing hard enough to believe what is being said. How should we interpret this one word? Your your New American Standard probably says prepared, kata, Trismena. It's the word. Well, I got to take you to Greek class for a second because it, and it, it might not make a lot of sense at first. In Greek, we have voices, certain voices grammatically that we don't have in, in English. Um, in, in this voice, it's, it's how you say something with a verb respecting who's doing the action. This is a middle passive verb. What that means, let me read you straight out of my Greenglish, my Greenglish, my English, my Greek grammar. That's what I'm trying to say, my Greek grammar. 
The middle voice shows the subject, the person, acting in his own interest or his own, on his own behalf or participating in the results of the verbal action. In oversimplistic terms, someone in the middle form of the verb could be translated as the performer of the action actually acting upon himself. In other words, it's reflexive. You say, what do you mean reflexive? Some people take this, this middle voice and they translate this like this. Vessels that were prepared by themselves for destruction. Now, theologically, that's true. No problem that that's, that's, that's the case. I just don't think that's exactly what this is saying. And I think it stresses, puts too much stress on this, this Greek obscure middle voice. The middle voice is not used very often at all. It's very rare in the Greek New Testament. Here's the question I have. Not only did Paul know exactly what he was writing, the Holy Spirit, who was superintending his every word and grammatical structure, knew as well. Do you believe that every single verbal nuance of every part of God's word is entirely inspired? Do you believe that? If so, it has implications on what's going on here. Because it's not only that it's in the middle voice, it's the context, it's what is being said here. Now, let me see if I can clear some of this up. The context is entirely about God being sovereign over salvation, right? If the context is about God being sovereign over salvation, why do you think Paul, in a very rare, obscure Greek voice tense, would speak in, actually, they did it themselves? Does that make, because he's going to go on after this and go on with the sovereignty of God. Is this just like his his subtle footnote to try to get it around the Holy Spirit's clarity? I, I don't think so. If Paul had wanted to say that God was not doing the preparing, he could have been far clearer than he is in this passage. So if they have been prepared, let's look at the passage, let's look at it in English. Prepared for destruction, the question is, who prepared them or created them for destruction. Again, Dr. Schreiner's very helpful. The word denotes a preparation by God, a divine passive, for destruction rather than self-preparation. You may say, I, I, that, that's troubling, that can't be the case. The rest of Scripture would never support this. Listen to Solomon and Peter. Solomon said in Proverbs 16, 4, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked the Lord has made for the day of evil, the day of destruction. Back to that balancing again. 1 Peter 2, 8. Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Listen to this. For they stumble, unbelievers don't believe, they they stumble over Christ. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word. You say, there it is. Man's responsibility, I gotcha. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Next phrase. And to this they were also appointed or predestined. You say, but 
I thought Peter said, God is not willing that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. He did. And Paul says, there's some made for destruction and some made for mercy. He did. And I came to church so you could tell me how those work out together. I can't. Just when the the fingernails on the chalkboard are getting worse, he keeps scraping. Verse 23. He actually created these vessels for destruction to make known the riches of his glory upon the saved, upon the vessels of mercy. Here's our same word, which he predestined or prepared or created beforehand for glory. Here's the crux. God shows his severity and God shows his mercy to show the full range of his character. Turn the page over to Romans 11. We'll get here in just a while. Paul knew we were thinking that, and so he's reflecting on this amazing mercy that God gives and this overwhelming severity of God's wrath and judgment. And he says in verse 22, 11, 22, Behold, behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fail, severity, but to you, God's kindness. The unsearchable, unbelievable riches of the truth that God chooses some men for salvation and not all men are not others for... Others are chosen for destruction. Revealed to us here in this passage is not intended to confuse us, upset us. Certainly it's not put here so we will question God's character. I think this truth is put here in Romans 9, given to us by the Holy Spirit in the inspired word of the living God to make us amazed he has chosen anyone, much less us, to believe because we are no more worthy than those who disbelieve to be in God's kingdom. So what's the question? Am I chosen? No. Do I believe? There was a man I sat with at Starbucks for uh, three hours. It was in uh, Santa Clarita, just down by your guy's house. And uh, he told me for three hours how he was convinced and sure that he wasn't elect. He was just so... Traumatized. I don't think I'm elect. I don't think I'm chosen. And I said, how would you know that? He says, just because I don't know. How, how would I know? I said, believe. I do believe, but I just don't know. That's all I got. Believe. For as many as believe, he gave the right to become children of God. Belief is the work of God. It's the work of God that you believe. Now, just a little footnote. This is just a primer on next week, okay? Verse 24 says, Even us, 
He says, it's one thing to be, he, remember he's been talking to Jews so far. Jews who are believers in Christ, who are elect, not every Jew was elect or a believer in Christ. Now the principle applies to everyone, as we'll see right here, because he says, verse 24, even us whom he called not only from among the Jews, but, but from among the Gentiles. We should be saying, I can't believe we're chosen. We're not even of the promised seed of Abraham. We ought to be so amazed that we know anything. You ought to be amazed that you have and know it Old Testament. We live in a predominantly Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, and my neighbors just doesn't understand why I love and understand Old Testament stories and psalms and theology. It just doesn't connect. What a gift. You say, but that, I'm still troubled. I'm troubled by God doing this and not doing that. Choosing him and not choosing him. I understand. I think probably two or three times over the course of the last few years when we've studied this passage, I've always, this, this subject rather, I've always gone back to a very helpful quote. you likely hear it again, so... You can be ready for it. But it's so helpful. It's in his little booklet, um, What Difference Does It Make? by Mark Webb. And he tells of the story. He was an instructor in a class. And the story is, is, is remarkable. Listen to this lady who's confronting him and listen to his response. Webb says, After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, God's election and predestination, I asked four questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein. You misunderstand the situation. You are visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men and women are thronging, they're crowding to get in the door and God is saying to various ones, yes, you come, but not you, and, and you, but not you, etc. Webb writes, the situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet, all men without exception are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one and, and that one and this one over here and that one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who would otherwise have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place, and hell would be bursting at the seams. That kind of response, grounded as I believe it is in scriptural truth, does put a different complexion on things, does it not? If you persist, pers perish in hell, Webb writes, if you perish in hell, 
blame yourself as it is entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit God for it's entirely his work. To him alone belongs all praise and glory for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. How do you respond to this? How how do you respond? Paul understands the tension. He understands our tension. So he offers us an example of the two responses in the passage. Look at verse 19 and 20. It's to question God and his character. How can you find fault? You question God. You push back on God. You ask God the questions that he must answer for our feeble minds. But look at verse 23. Here's the other response. This is the intention. God did all of this. Why did he do all this? He did all of it to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. That's it. If you're a vessel of mercy, you understand all this, not to question God, but to praise God, to be awed by God, to step back and look at the river and say, I'm not going to try to cross it. It's too difficult, but I am going to appreciate and understand its beauty. In Ephesians, Paul calls this doctrine the mystery of his will. He didn't say the surefire answer that will solve every human curiosity dimension of his will. Paul says it's a mystery. After talking about this issue for three chapters, Paul says at the end of chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. Do you see that? Unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. If Paul explained this doctrine and Paul concludes this doctrine by saying you can't fathom it and you can't search it, why do we keep trying? Step back and look at the river. Say, what a God. But it's intended for vessels of mercy to say, why do I have mercy? There's no explanation for that except his kind grace our response to the teaching of the sovereignty of God's salvation as believers is what a God I can't believe it it's just unsearchable unfathomable and to him be the glory and honor forever and ever he says He says amen, and we say amen, that's the way he finishes. You know what amen means? So be it. Let it be. That's how it is. The infinite God and his infinite wisdom is bigger than the space between your two ears. Quit trying to shoehorn him in there. Jesus died for the sins of all those who had believed. So you know what the takeaway is? Believe. Believe. 
Don't get tripped up by this doctrine. Just believe. And if you are a believer, just say, I, I, oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of the riches. And glorify his great, unsearchable sovereignty. Would you pray with me? Our prayer room is going to be open to my right in a moment, and we'd love to talk with you. Jim and Teresa Mitchell will be over there. I understand that these are hard truths. Paul understood that these are hard truths. Even Paul said it's unsearchable, it's unfathomable. God's mind is so much bigger than ours. Let's submit to it. Father, you've encouraged all to come to you You've called all to come to as many as believe. You would call the children belong to you. Please, by the exercise of your grace, arrest hearts to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, to look to him as the Savior and sole source of salvation, to look to him as, as the one who can fix their souls when their lives are so broken. Give us an acceptance of the mystery of your will. Because of the work of Jesus in our hearts, we pray. Amen.